it is always a humbling experience to be in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And, and I just sense the Holy Spirit with us this morning. And, and you know, when there is the presence of the Holy Spirit, when we experience that, um, things begin to happen. Things begin to move around and shift around, and at least spiritually speaking, and maybe our heart and our minds. And, and, and I, I cannot help but think that there is unity in the experience of the Spirit of the living God. That when we experience that Holy Spirit... That, that, that we get together, we come together, we're unified. Would everybody agree with that? Just kind of, yeah, maybe. That, that we become unified because of the experience of the Holy Spirit. I, I had a great experience for the first time in my life, my wife and I, and I think Heidi's checking in kids or something, but uh, last night we went to an escape room for the very first time with some of our good folks over here on this side. And uh, so we, we did the, was it the police room, right? So we did this escape room. Anybody ever been to an escape room? Raise your hand. Okay, it looks like maybe about a third of us. And so, I mean, you've heard about it, and it's really cool. And there was, what, seven of us or six of us or something like that. And we're in this police room, and we're locked into a jail, and there's real bars, and there's all these locks and these, all these puzzles that we got to solve. And what was really cool about that experience, my first time ever, is that everybody contributed something. I, I noticed that. Everybody figured a puzzle out. Everybody unlocked the lock. I mean, there's tons of locks. I mean, and it seemed like everybody had a part, and we were a team, and we were together. And, of course, the goal was to escape the jail cell and then find the briefcase that was full of money that was hidden away and then unlock the door and be able to get out of the escape room. And, and, and it was really cool because everybody had a role that they played. Everybody did something. Everybody contributed something because we had that one common goal. That understanding that this was our objective. And I, I cannot help but think, as I relate, relate to that experience last night, that, that when we experience the presence of the Holy Spirit, and we begin to sense God's desire and God's will for us as a church, that we become unified. That, that we, we come together and we have this common thing, you know, this common focus because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and you know, and that, that really excites me. I, I come to the book of Acts and we're launching a new series, a new studies uh, in, in the book of Acts. And we're going, going to be in the first few chapters there. And it's not, it's not going to be an expository type of message or a textual message where we're looking at, you know, each verse along the way. But we'll read a passage and then we'll kind of pull one highlight out of that passage and then we'll ask ourselves, letting the Word speak to us, allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to us, we'll ask ourselves, how does that passage apply to my life? And I, I think it's a good, good way to start, uh, you know, especially when we understand that, that we are in Acts. This is the beginning you know, of the church, the New Testament church, and there's no question that the landscape was changing. And, uh, you know, and, and God was moving in, in the life of the church. And also, as I begin to read in this introductory message, when I begin to read the book of Acts, I'm also reminded to be careful of the danger zone. You know what the danger zone is. You've heard of the danger zone. The danger zone is the zone of lukewarmness. <laughs> I, I think of a passage in Revelation that talks about, you know, it talks about that if we're we're neither hot nor cold. If we're lukewarm, what happens? God will spew us out of his mouth. And so there is that danger zone that we're to be careful of. And I think Acts really reminds us to try to avoid that danger zone. And, and then for background, you know, and for, 
you know, for, you know, academic sake, we understand that there's been a lot of research, a lot of studies that's gone into the book of Acts. And, and as we study and look down through the centuries that, yes, there were some redactions and there was some interpretation and some liberty in some areas. But but there there certainly was was not a change in in things that are for certain. Like, for example, the author of Acts is, is Dr. Luke. We know that. We know for certain that Acts is a story written of the early church, but also a documentary of factual information about history. And I think it's important that we understand those two things, that this is, you know, it's a history written about the early church, but also there's some factual historical things that's a part of this book, because that helps give us the context in which we understand what it is that God is saying to us through his people and their experience. It's, it's kind of like what one, one uh, person defined as praxis. Praxis is a word spelled P-R-A-X-I-S, praxis, which means it's where theory and the practical or theory and practice collide, where they come together. And then there's this truth that comes out of that. And that's kind of what we see here when we look at history and theology. We see history and theology kind of clashing into each other. And then out of that, there is this confidence that we find in this document. And, and, and I understand that our confidence in the truth within a document is very much based on the credibility of that document. So let's, let's take some time and talk about that. I mean, as we launch the study in the book of Acts, you know, the validity of the document, the validity of this, what we are saying is the living word of God. Amen. Well, some factual information is this, that we know that the, the word of God, that the Holy Bible is the most read book in the history of mankind. How many knew that already? Amen. So we recognize that it's it's read. It's been read more than any other book in, in all of history. I love the story in, in regards to, you know, the word of God being the supernatural revelation of God by inspiration. Did you catch that? The supernatural revelation of God by inspiration or by divine inspiration. I love the story that stands behind that, that Dr. Wendell Bose shared with us when I was a senior at Northwest National University. He was my senior theology professor. He was also my Greek professor. And he, he shares us the story of the 72 amanuensises in regards to how did we decide on which passages or which books would be a part of the canonized scripture, the Bible that we have today. And he tells the story of the 72 amanuensises that were charged and they were to be they were to go out and in a three year period they were to study these documents that were available, all of them, and, and they were to come back and they were to say, here are the ones that the Lord has laid upon my heart. The Holy Spirit has spoke to me. These are the ones that are to be a part of the Holy Word of God. And so they, they were sent out, and Emmanuelensis, by the way, is a professional writer. This was a time, obviously, centuries ago, a time when uh, most of society was illiterate and they did not know how to read and write. And so we had these professional readers and writers called amanuensises. And so the 72 were sent out and they spent three years in different parts of the country. And they studied and they prayed, seeking God's inspiration, God's guidance. And they come back and then they present, of course, uh, to the powers that be that these are the books that's to be a part of this the canonized scripture. So here's the divine inspiration part. Here's the miracle part of it is that all 72 come back. All 72 decided on the exact same documents, the exact same books to be a part of the word of God. And that's why we have the holy word of God or the canonized scripture as we understand it today. Now, the impact of some of that 
The impact is understanding that the Word of God, and then think about it, how wonderfully the Word fits together, how logically the theology and the Scripture fits together. That the Word of God was, was, uh, it was produced through about 40 different authors, 40 different human hands that participated in recording the Word of God over a 1,400-year period. Now listen to this, teens. Here's what's, what's so divine about this, the supernatural divine part about this. Can you imagine, think of this, can you imagine if I were to choose three of you, let's say John, a leader here, and Annika, where she's at, somebody, Annika, and a Matt, I know Matt, and, uh, and let's say we were to choose those three, and we were to send you out into California, in different parts of California, and we were to give you three weeks, and I said to you, write about fish, let's say, that's the topic. And, and you were to spend just three weeks, not 1,400 years, not 40 of you, just three of you. You were sent out into California and you were right for three weeks about this one topic. And then you were to come back here to Mission Church of the Nazarene and present what you wrote about. What do you think the chances are that all three of them would write something, a document that would perfectly and nicely fit together? I mean, it would be almost an impossibility. But yet here we see the Word of God, 40 different authors over the period of 1,400 years, and it so wonderfully and perfectly and nicely fits together. That's the, that's the inspired Word of God. That's what this book stands upon as we understand this is the Holy Word of God. Amen. So with that understanding, that background, we go to Acts chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 this morning. So go with me and let's look at Acts this morning. Let's go to Acts chapter 1, beginning there at verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. So this is... Of course, after his, his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, and, and, and then, of course, his ascension. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this, this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So this gift is promised. Remember, Jesus Christ comes. He's crucified, resurrected from the dead. And of course, as he's referring here, he, he ascends to the Father. But then in place of Christ, because he was Emmanuel, God present. But in place, of course, there is this promise. There is this comforter that comes onto the scene. And that comforter is the Holy Spirit. So remember, I said in the beginning this morning that we're going to, you know, look at kind of a highlight of this section of scripture, this passage. And we're going to pull that highlight out and ask, Lord, what are you saying to us, you know, uh, about this? And, and what the highlight is here that I want to point out to you is it's the Holy Spirit. What a perfect uh, course to choose. Um, Kelly, come Holy Spirit. You know, come Holy Spirit. I mean, things happen when <clears throat> the Holy Spirit comes onto the scene. 
There, there's no debate over that. I think, I think that we would all agree, everyone in this room, whether we are 10 years old or whether we are 100 years old, that when the Holy Spirit is present, that things begin to change. The landscape changes, as we see here in the book of Acts, the beginning of this new church, the landscape begins to change when we, we begin to include and talk about the Holy Spirit. I, I guess the question then I, I would have for you uh, to begin the conversation is then, Um, What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? In fact, some of a few of you respond to that. I understand we have different backgrounds and we have different ideas. But what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Somebody just say out loud, just an idea. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? No wrong answers. Go ahead. Somebody. Out loud. To have direction. So the Holy Spirit fills you. Now you have direction. Somebody else. What else? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Responsive. Okay. Responsive. Good. So the Holy Spirit comes in. He gives you direction. And now there's this this responsive thing that's happening because you're responding to, of course, the Spirit of God. Good. Somebody else. What does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? To be filled with the Holy Spirit. Somebody else. You have peace, so you're filled with the Holy Spirit, and then you have this peace that that comes upon you. Amen. All of those are fantastic responses. Well, maybe to answer the question, bear with me now, to answer the question, we, we need to ask another question, and that question is, who is the Holy Spirit? In fact, we look at Scripture, and we know that He is the third person of, of the triune God that we serve. In fact, in John chapter 10, verse 30, we read, I and the Father are one. And so we we begin to grapple with the oneness of God, three persons, but one God. And understanding God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. In fact, we've been, we've been wrestling with that for centuries. And we're still processing that as we try to understand that. that the intimacy and the perichoresis of, of, of those three persons that is God. And so that is part of, you know, part of the experience that, that God, he, he is the Holy Spirit. He is God the Father. He is the Son that became flesh. We understand that. But then we go a little deeper in John chapter 14, verse 26 and read, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, I underline Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit now defining the Holy Spirit is the Advocate. The Holy Spirit is your advocate and that he's he's working on your behalf and he's speaking and and, and he's he's working for you before you even respond. That's prevenient grace. So you have an advocate between you and the father. That is the Holy Spirit. We recognize that. That's what the, the scripture is teaching us. And so this Holy Spirit will teach us all things. He will he will remind us of the things that the Lord has said through the word, the living word of God. We understand that. Understanding the role of the Holy Spirit. Remember what we said in the beginning, that things happen when we experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. But, but there's some, I, I think there's some erroneous ideas that are out there. Some people have tried to understand or interpret the Holy, Holy Spirit in ways that, that probably are not very biblical. Like, for example, uh, erroneously, some may see the Holy Spirit as a muse. 
you know, he's this special muse for a gifted someone or someone that has this, this, this special, you know, role that God has given them. And so the Holy Spirit's just for them and they only have the Holy Spirit. You see, that, that, that's erroneous. Or, or another idea that's erroneous is that, that he's just raw power, you know, that we might wield for our own benefit, that we might, you know, just kind of use so that we can get what we want. You see, that's erroneous. That's, that's, that's non-rational. And, and think of that phrase as I, I move through this message today, the idea of what it means to be non-rational. That's non-rational. It's inconsistent with good theology because good biblical theology is rational. It, it, it does make sense. It, it is logical when we look at the word properly. In fact, let's go to Romans chapter 8, verse 9, if you have God's word. Let's just turn there together as we look at the word this morning. We go to Romans chapter 8. Take a moment, look at that. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. Uh, just being reminded, you're not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have, now there's no ambiguity here. Notice it, it's very clear. The baseline's being laid out here for us. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... They do not belong to Christ. So what's the baseline? That those that, that have Christ, those that are in Christ, those that know Christ, have the Spirit. And then further, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14, we read, For we were all baptized by one Spirit, we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, and we are all given, so we're all given the one Spirit to drink. So the Holy Spirit comes into the life of every believer, and, and that's established here in, in these few passages, that, that the Holy Spirit comes upon those that believe in Jesus Christ, and, and that Spirit we drink in, not like liquid or water, but we, we drink Him in, and the Holy Spirit enters into our life, and then our life comes alive, and we see things differently, we understand things differently. In fact, teenagers... I've experienced that sometimes I will see one thing in a passage when I read it one day, but then another time and another day I'll read it and I'll see something completely different because of the revelation of the Holy Spirit working through the Word. Amen. So understanding the role of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit comes into the life of the believer. What? What? So who is he? We ask the question, who is? Who he is? Well, he is the presence of God. He is the deeper work of the kingdom. He, he is not a mystery, not a secret code, not unreachable. He is, instead of miracles and wonders, He is everlasting life. He is the reality of hope for humanity. Because He is, He is alive and He is God in us. And we recognize that role of the Spirit. And I said, He is instead of miracles and wonders, because those that lived in the New Testament... You see, they did not have the New Testament, so they needed signs and wonders. But you see, we have the disclosure of God. We have the New Testament, and so we have the Holy Spirit. And that role of the Holy Spirit in our life is real. So here in Acts, the work of God moves from the non-rational to the rational. This is the full revelation of who God is. It's his, his disclosure of himself. And, and here's the good news. God completes what he starts. God completes what he starts. And not only good news for our life and your life, but, but it's good news for the church because God, he does not abandon us. He does not leave us to ourselves. He completes what he starts. 
And, and notice every single time the Holy Spirit moves, it's, it's about the mission of, of his kingdom. It's, it's about what he's doing in his kingdom, not what we're doing in his kingdom, but what God is doing in his kingdom. And we recognize that it's, it's the revelation of God, God's rational, simple truth in the word. And this might be a shock to you, but the simple, rational truth of his revelation is that God loves you. Did you know that? God loves you. And I want to say that resoundingly this morning, if you've not heard it recently, to the person in the very back, to the person in the very front, that God loves you. He loves you and he has a plan for your life. and He wants to be a part of your life and part of the revelation of God in himself through Jesus Christ. It's just that, that he loves you this morning. Amen. And you can imagine, I mean, can you imagine... If we really understand that and we embrace that, that God loves us and his Holy Spirit is for us. Can you imagine how smoothly church would go, how smoothly we would be together, how smoothly groups would work together if we experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Because those that are believers, remember, those that are Christians, they receive, they've received the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit directs us to be, you know, like Christ. And the more that we're like Christ and the more that we live Christ up, the more God is glorified. So can you imagine, I'm back, can you imagine how smoothly church would run if we were all just like Christ? I have to say this. I think that if we we were just like Christ and we were all becoming more like Christ, I think we would have pure motives. I think our motives, you know, would be pure that, that we'd have a clean heart. And I know these are just phrases, maybe familiar or unfamiliar, but you can understand the idea of the term of pure, that, that we'd have a pure motive and that our heart would be cleansed and, and the way that we would treat others would be affected because of the Holy Spirit living in us. And, and we can then imagine a faith without ambiguity or a faith without pretense. And we could have this thing that I'm saying is a, a, a pure heart. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's very rational work. It's, it's the deeper work that is a heart cleansing because the Spirit of God lives in us and He cleanses us and He purifies us and He empowers us for the reality of the atonement of Christ. And the atonement is that threefold act whereby God becomes flesh and that flesh is crucified upon the cross and then hallelujah, the Spirit of God comes upon us and that Spirit begins to change the landscape of our our church, the landscape of our families, the landscape of our lives because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. Amen. I I guess I, I need to put a point on it this way. The deeper work of redemption, when the Holy Spirit comes in us and the Holy Spirit begins to work in us, he not only would identify, say, sin in us, the Holy Spirit would not only identify, say, a rebellious spirit in us, And maybe that rebellious spirit is towards somebody else or maybe that rebellious spirit is towards, you know, authority. Or maybe it's even a rebellious spirit towards the church, heaven forbid. But when the Holy Spirit is is in us and lives in us and the heart cleansing happens and we have a pure heart, there is a transformation that happens and we begin to experience reconciliation. That's the deeper work of the Holy Spirit, is that we experience reconciliation as the church, as people that are calling themselves Christian, 
And as we learn how to be Christian, then we realize the role of reconciliation by the power of the Spirit. Reconciliation happens in the church, and we have reconciliation with each other. We have reconciliation with God. And folks, that, that's, more, that's more than just semantics. I was sharing in the early service, I was saying, man, I have, I've been praying all week. I have been bathing. I've been trying to bathe this message in, in prayer and the Holy Spirit. Because the Lord, I believe, just kind of laid on my heart before that we can go deeper into the book of Acts and before we can be a missional church, we have to be a church of reconciliation. We have to deal with the dynamics that that are right here in front of us before we can deal with dynamics that are out there, out there in the community. Deal with the issues that are right here that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us about. And I, uh, I remember taking communion or preparing communion for my church in Florida. I pastored in Florida, for those that don't know, for 10 years. Uh, it's a large church and lots of people were there that morning, probably 900 people. And I was having communion. We had about 34 servers and all that. And, and I'm, so I'm in the middle of the service. I'm, ha- I'm, I'm doing communion. And I, I mean, I'm hev- I even hesitate to share with this with you. I don't know. If... I'm the pastor getting ready to serve communion. And as I was getting ready to serve communion, what struck my heart, what pierced my heart, was that there was a relationship with this man over here that was not right. And so I looked at my worship pastor and I said, do something. And I left the platform and I walked a long walk up that aisle. And I took that man by the arm and I walked outside of the sanctuary. And I confessed to him what I thought my wrongdoing was. And I asked him to forgive me. Such a sweet person and the man, he, he forgave me. And then I came back and it felt like all of a sudden... Like Red Bull, I had wings. (laughs) And I came back just so light because of reconciliation. How can we be effective out there? Oh yeah, we're a missional church. If we're not letting the Holy Spirit be effective in here and, and experience reconciliation... Ladies and gentlemen, we cannot let the enemy have a toehold. We cannot allow the enemy to have a toehold. I believe God wants to do something. He's changing the landscape. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I believe God wants to change my heart. And I want to just refer to Acts chapter 9, verse 25. In fact, to do this, it's a little bit different. I want to have my pastor buddy here. Start by taking it down that aisle. And uh, Molly, take the other end of this, down around that other. Uh, I don't know where the end is. You'll figure it out. Well, here it is. Take it down around there. And I think of Acts chapter 9 and verse 25. And this is where, you know, of course, Paul on the road to Damascus is converted. And then he's in Damascus. And what's happening, the Jews are hating him. Because he speaks boldly in the synagogue about the gospel of Christ. And in his bold speaking, he's really upsetting the apple cart. 
challenging the empire, the powers that be. He's preaching the kingdom in the power of the Holy Spirit. And they threaten his life and they want to kill him. So they plot to do that. And it says there in that passage, what happens is disciples help him escape because God had long, you know, big plans for Paul. You know that. And so they help him escape through an opening or a window in the city wall so that he could live to preach another day. And it says that they put him in a basket. Imagine that now in your mind's eye. They put him in a basket and they lower him down. It does not say that it was chains or it was a sheet or I'm imagining it was probably ropes attached to the basket. And so all the disciples are together. In fact, in Acts, the phrase one accord, the phrase, this unity, this unification across the board in the new church that they were in one accord. You see, they were together. They were hanging on to the rope. They were working in tandem. They were unified in luring Paul down through that opening in the city wall that he might be safe. God is calling our church to unification. I believe that as, as, as real and true as I can see you physically. God is calling us to unification. Whether it's our teen group or individuals in our children's department or whether it's our senior adults or whether it's our choir that, ladies and gentlemen, God wants to make us united for the cause of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You see, we may be of different stripes. I mean, it may be you have opinions about this over here and somebody else has opinion about this over there. You see, the enemy would love for us to, to super hyper focus on things that really do not matter. You see, what we need to focus on is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I believe unification will come. And I want to invite us, and in, in, if you will be patient with me, would you participate with me in putting a hand on this rope symbolically? Like lowering Paul down in the basket, the disciples hanging on to the rope. Would we, could we come together and at least have a hand on this rope saying that we are unified? In fact, I want to challenge the entire congregation to do that this morning. Come up here and find a place on this rope today. Come up here, church, and let's be unified together and say, you know, symbolically, we are disciples of Christ. Symbolically, we are unifying. We are coming together as God's people. We are coming together as a congregation for God's glory not for man's glory, not as a favor to the pastor. If it's a favor to the pastor, don't do it. But if you're saying, yes, I want to be unified. I want to be a part of what God is doing, the mission that he's called us to as a church so that we can set all of these things aside and in the spirit of reconciliation, we can be reconciled to each other. Thank you, Thank you son. We can be reconciled. We can be reconciled to each other. We can be reconciled to God. But before we can ever be a church on mission out there, we have to be a church in reconciliation on mission in here. And I don't know if I'm by myself. I, I don't think. I think we're together. Let's do it. Let's be unified for Christ and ask the Holy Spirit to, to, to say, God, anoint this moment, this day, as we are all setting the hand to this rope. We are saying in one accord, we're going to be God's church. Amen. We're going to be God's church unified together that God might be glorified and Christ might be lifted up as we are saying, Father, 
Help unify us. Help us to be reconciled. Help us to no longer allow differences to keep us apart, but that we might have the love of Christ in us and keep the main thing, the main thing, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Precious Father in heaven, as we lay our hand upon this rope, we feel we realize that we fall short. We realize that, Lord, that we we are a people that are needy and that, Lord, that there's healing that you want to do. And I pray that you would heal that you would heal our church, our congregation. I pray that you would heal hearts and that you would reconcile individuals. I pray that, Father in heaven, that you would just sweep across this congregation in a spirit of unification and that, Lord, that that the enemy will not have a toehold, that we serve because we serve the risen Christ. And by the power of the Spirit that we are united as one. And that, Lord, that you will be glorified in that. So, Father, I pray that you would anoint every man and every woman, every teenager, every child that has a hand upon this rope. And that, Father, that when people come back next Sunday that's been gone this Sunday, (laughs) that they'll say, wow, something's different. Something's changed about our church. That you will be glorified, Father, not for our recognition, that you are lifted up. And so, Father, I pray that you would just come now, Holy Spirit, come now, Holy Spirit, and just lay your spirit upon us and just soften our hearts, tenderize our hearts that, Lord, that we would seek you and only you and that we would not let our emotions and our biases separate us. We'd not let opinions get in the way of what the Holy Spirit wants to do, Father in heaven. And Lord, I... I believe you put this weight upon my, my shoulders this morning and my heart as I was walking to the platform, as I was carrying it throughout this whole week. I believe, Father, that you are speaking to us. That is, you, are, you changed the landscape of that new church. And Lord, in one day, 3,000 were added to your church because of the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of power that we need as our expectations are lifted and they rise higher and higher, they raise higher and higher, Father. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would descend upon our church and that, Lord, you would anoint that man and that woman, that young person right now that is skeptical. Take away the skepticism, Father. Hallelujah. It's your Holy Spirit that we seek today. It's your faith that we seek today. And it's reconciliation. It's reconciliation that we need, Father, with with each other and reconciliation that we need with you, Father. So Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. I'm going to have our worship team lead us in this song. Holy Spirit, come as we just sing and we just seek the face of the Lord today. Let's do that. Let's sing.